that. Take a deep breath. Okay. <laughs> Today's reading is a parable that Jesus told his followers as written by Luke. Jesus used parables to illustrate something that he wanted to teach. And from looking up some information about parables on Google, as you do, um, it seems that a defining characteristic of a parable is that there's something underlying it which suggests that this is how a person should behave or what he should believe. And that's where this is a very interesting parable, interesting to see what he's going to say, um, told by Jesus. So listen for yourself, because it's not quite what the ending that you'd imagine Jesus would say. Jesus told this story to his disciples. There was a certain rich man who had a manager handling his affairs. One day, a report came from that manager that the manager was wasting his employer's money. So the employer called him in and said, What's this I hear about you? Get your report in order because you are going to be fired. The manager thought to himself, Now what? My boss has fired me. I don't have the strength to dig ditches. And I'm too proud to beg. Ha, I know how to ensure that I'll have plenty of friends who will give me a home when I'm fired. So he invited each person who owed money to his employer to come and discuss the situation. He asked the first one, how much do you owe him? The man replied, I owe him 800 gallons of olive oil. So the manager told him, take the bill, quickly change it to 400 gallons. And how much do you owe my employer? He asked the next man. I owe him 1,000 bushels of wheat, was the reply. Here, the manager said, take the bill and change it to 800 bushels. The rich man had to admire the dishonest rascal for being so shrewd. And it's true that the children of this world are more shrewd in dealing with the world around them than are the children of the light. Here's the lesson. Use your worldly resources to benefit others and make friends. Then, when your possessions are gone, they will welcome you to an eternal home. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Anna. As always, fantastic introduction. I don't know how in the world Gordon's going to get his job back when he comes to visit us. Well, you know I love a good story. I love to read one, to hear one, to tell one. Have I got a story for you today? It's not mine. It's this parable of Jesus, and it's unlike any story that he tells anywhere else in the New Testament. And that's quite a statement because Jesus says some crazy things, some genuinely crazy, crazy things with his stories. The Good Samaritan, the Prodigal Son, the Wedding Banquet, the Mustard Seed, these aren't feel-good morality tales. They are social and religious hand grenades. Jesus lobs them into the crowd, and his listeners either run to the blast or they go scurrying for the exit. He had a way of putting the truth in your lap in such a way that was sort of like grabbing a tiger by the ears. You don't know whether to hang on or to let go. Sort of like Sam the fisherman, and I know you know this story. Sam was more successful at fishing than anybody on the lake where he lived. He was catching fish all the time and catching fish when no one else could catch fish. One day the game warden came by and said, Sam, I'd like to ride out with you on your boat and see what you're doing to be so successful. And Sam said, sure. They take the boat out into the middle of the lake, Sam's favorite fishing spot. 
He opens up his tackle box, takes out a stick of dynamite, lights it, and throws it overboard. Boom! Here in a minute, the fish float to the surface, and he just starts scooping them up with a dip net. The game warden loses his mind. What, what are you doing? You can't do this. This is illegal. You're, I, when we get back to shore, I'm going to put you under the jail. And Sam goes, huh. Reaches back into his tackle box, takes out another stick of dynamite, lights it, throws it in the game warden's lap and says, are you going to complain or are you going to fish? <laughs> it's pretty good. That's how the parables of Jesus work. You're going to complain and run from them, or are you going to fish? Are you going to do something with them? They aren't bedtime stories. They are subversive, dangerous in their time, status quo destroying powder kegs. And the parable before us today from Luke 16 has a trick fuse. This irresponsible, careless employee gets called to account because of his wasteful ways. Clean out your desk, comes the word. The pink slip is on its way. Security will be escorting you from the building. And the employee, the steward, the manager, as he is called in some translation, says to himself, now what? And I love his honesty. I'm not strong enough to dig ditches and I'm too proud to beg. So he is lazy and vain, but he's not stupid. He has a plan. So he starts cutting deals with everyone who owes his boss money or product. And you can see him in your mind. He has a few hours left at his desk on the trading floor. He pulls out his accounts, his portfolio. He starts making calls. Hey, Charlie, baby, how you doing today? How's the wife and the kids? I've just gone through some of our accounts here at the end of the quarter trying to tidy up some things. How much did you say that you owed us? Well, 800 gallons of olive oil, which in and of itself is quite the statement because it's like the entire yield of Galilee at the time. And the guy says, well, I'll tell you what, it's your lucky day. Make that 400. Are you serious? Make it 400. Don't worry about it. It's discount day here at the, at the firm. I'm going to make the notation in the software. The billing is going to be updated automatically. It's all good. Tell Marge and the kids I said, hey. And he's gone. And he moves account to account to account in his last hours at work making these kind of nefarious deals. That night he leaves the building for the last time with his little cardboard box filled with the items from his desk without his parking pass and his employee badge. He's gone. The next morning, his former assistant comes in with those same accounts to the boss's office and says, Sir, I've only made a preliminary assessment of these spreadsheets, but it appears that some drastic adjustments have been made to the accounts receivable department late last night. They're all changed in the software program. There's no way to recover them. There's been a 50% reduction across the board. What do we do? And the boss stands there for a minute with his mouth gaping open. Should he call law enforcement? Should he call the Security and Trade Commission? Should he send security to this guy's house and bring him back in? What does he do? He finally has to sort of smile and tip his hat and realize that this rascal got the best of him and he'll have to let it go. The obvious thing would be, go arrest him and throw him in jail. That would be the moral thing. 
This man should pay for what he had done. Jesus should have said, don't cheat, don't lie, and don't steal. Jesus should have said what our mothers and parents taught us all about being honest. Jesus should have reinforced that good Protestant work ethic, or at least the pervasive Catholic guilt for such actions. The boss who has now lost this enormous amount of income has to shake his head. The rich man had to admire this dishonest rascal for being so shrewd. A couple word studies here in that verse. First, that phrase, dishonest rascal, in the New Living Translation. It isn't a compliment. The King James calls him unrighteous, which is closer to the original meaning. It's not that he simply acted dishonestly or he had a momentary lapse of ethical judgment. By nature, this man was morally corrupt. What he did was more than an act. It was an expression of his character. He is not a hero to anyone but himself. And the second word, he was shrewd for the New Living Translation. The King James uses the word wise, and neither are strong enough in this context. The word means calculating, devious, scheming. The root of the word in the Greek is frain. It means literally to hold the reins, or how we would use the phrase, to pull the strings. Here is the hero of Jesus' story. A conniving, sneaky criminal who cannot save his job, but puppet masters a plan to save his future. With corrupt business dealings, he obligates others to himself that they will give him opportunities after he has exhausted the opportunity that he has. He is the banker with shoddy books and a poor record whose institution collapses, only to get bailed out, whereby he stays wealthy and powerful and continues his wicked ways. He is the CEO who milks and then runs a company into the ground. And when the shareholders have finally had enough and they show him the door, he leaps out ahead of them with a golden parachute landing somewhere else to continue his pirating schemes. He is a Wall Street trader selling derivatives that he knows are not worth the paper they are written on, but because of his connections and the paybacks, he never faces the true consequences of his actions. He is the multi-million dollar football coach who can't win his own division, much less a championship, and keeps getting hired by the top teams. Y'all got the idea? We know this guy, don't we? He's everywhere. He is this guy. His name is Carlo. Carlo came to the United States in the early 1900s. He spent four years in college in his native Italy. He had nothing to show for it after those four years, no degree, no job. And what little savings he had, he lost gambling on the boat on the way over. No prospects in New York where he lands, he goes to Canada. In Canada, he learns English. He learns French. Already speaks Italian. He's charming. He's successful. He gets a job at a bank. And he's very successful at the bank until he's convicted of forgery and sent to prison. 
But he had wealthy friends in banking. And Carlo, now going by Charles, moves back to the States, to Boston, and he sets up an investment business. He was slick. He was quick. He was showing people how they can make a killing with postal coupons and various other banking implements of the 1920s. In the first six months of 1920 alone, Carlo took in $20 million in investments, promising 50% return in as little as 30 days. His scheme profited him millions. It lasted less than a year. This is Charles Carlo Ponzi of Ponzi scheme fame. The first in this country to pull off such a thing. If you can just keep it going, just keep fresh money coming in, it goes on forever. And then one day it collapses. In, in, his, in today's money, the losses taken by his investors would equal $250 million dollars. For comparison, this man, <laughs> Bernie Madoff, did the same thing in 2008. His investors lost $18 billion. Here's the thing about Carlo, Charles Ponzi. He went to jail for his crimes in Canada and got out. He went to jail for his crimes in Boston, and when he got out, he moved here to Florida where wealthy friends backed him again. And again, he was arrested selling Florida swampland to investors, having promised them that it was beachfront property. He went to prison again. He got out. He went home to Italy, where old friends lent him money. And he started a business. And what happened? When the authorities came for him, he escaped by boat to Brazil, where ultimately he lived out his days. His last words to a news reporter speaking about his Boston Ponzi scheme were these. I gave the Americans the best show they have ever staged since the landing of the Pilgrims. It was worth 15 million bucks alone just to watch me pull that thing over on them. Read this parable in light of that. Because this guy is a crook. These guys and this guy in the text. It's a fractured fairy tale. Do any of y'all remember this on the Bullwinkle show? Can I get a witness? Anybody know this? You get up early on Saturday morning in the 70s. Now, now Bullwinkle's been around since 1959. But in the 70s, it was, it was kind of low-class cartoons, not up to date, and they came on like at 5.30 in the morning. And I would be up watching Bullwinkle, and they had this show every week about fractured fairy tales. And they'd tell the story of Red Robin, oh, Red Robin Hood, yeah, Red Robin Hood, or, the, or Sleep, Sleeping Beauty, Cinderella. But they'd all be all messed up. Like Red, Little Red Riding Hood was a barber. And uh, Prince Charming arrives to kiss Sleeping Beauty and wake her from the sleep, and he finds out that everybody's attracted to her, so he just builds an amusement park around her. Stuff like that all the time. When you get to school a little bit later and they read you the real thing, you're like, really? I thought that it was this. Fractured fairy tale. That's the first thing I think of when I, when I read this parable because it's just, it's just not right. But Jesus does give us an answer if we can understand it. Verses 8 and 9. It is true that the children of this world are more shrewd in dealing with the world around them than are the children of the light. Here's the lesson. Use your worldly resources to benefit others and make friends. And when your possessions are gone, they will welcome you to an eternal home. 
the phrases children of this world and children of the light were common in Jesus' day. They were used primarily by a group of people known as the Essenes, a pious group that saw things very black and white. Jesus is making it clear that this dishonest employee, this dishonest rascal, is a child of the world. He is not with Jesus. He is not in the light. Still, there is something he can teach us. Be shrewd, that is, be intentional, be driven. There's a vast difference between Jesus saying, I admire this man's dishonesty, which he does not say, and saying, I admire this man's scrappiness, his guts, his skill at playing the game he was in. Now let me circle back around to that song, The Games People Play. Oh, the games people play now, every night and every day now, never meaning what they say now, never saying what they mean. And they while away the hours in their ivory towers till they're covered up with flowers in the back of a black limousine. Everyone, everywhere, every person in this room is playing some kind of game. Every one of us. These games have rules, as all games do. And each game has a way that you score and that you win. Are you following me? Some people are in the money game. The bottom line is all it is about. I hope no one in this room is playing that game. They win when each quarter is more profitable than the last. They win when they have more than the next guy. They win when their investment strategy outpaces the market. And people who win at this game are very, very good at it. They know how to make it, keep it, invest it. It consumes them. All their decisions, all their actions, all their scrappiness and skill go toward winning that game. For others, it's success or whatever matrix they want to employ to call what success is. For others, it is pleasure. It can be trips. It can be vacations. It can be how many college degrees you can get. It can be production. It can be a sport. It can be a hobby. This is the game I'm playing. These are the rules. These are the intended results. And I'm going to excel at this. I'm going to use my life to reach the goals that I have set. Now are you with me? All right. Are you awake? Let me give you an example that will help. This is Simone Biles. All four foot eight, 100 pounds of her. She is a rocket ship. She is a rock star. Within national, world, and Olympic competition, she is the most decorated U.S. gymnast in history, probably the greatest gymnast to ever live. She was born naturally athletic, but that didn't get her to the top of the podium. She was in foster care for most of her early life because both her parents were addicts. A grandfather discovered found her where she was and rescued her and her siblings out of that. At eight years of age, because of her natural talent and ability, she started training in gymnastics. Today, as an Olympian, winning all those medals, she practices gymnastics 40 hours a week. It's her job. And that little diminutive pint size of her, she still takes in 2,500 calories a day to maintain her training schedule. She is fierce. She is committed. And you don't win her game without those things. 
I love something that Malcolm Gladwell says. He says, if you want to be an expert at something, it takes 10,000 hours. You want to master something? 10,000 hours. That's what you have to put in to become a master of anything. Guitar, basketball, making money, gymnastics, whatever. She puts in her time. And she's tough and she's cagey. She's mentally focused because you can't win unless you are those things. Now do you see where Jesus is taking this? His game isn't the game played in or by the world. His game isn't even on the same field. It's a different set of rules. It's a different way. It requires a different approach, a different focus. And he calls you and he calls me, he calls us to approach our lives with the same vigor and focus and passion of an athlete, of a desperate businessman. We should treat life as if everything is on the line because it is. We should use the same fierceness in the spiritual realm as the go-getters in the physical one. Benefit others, Jesus said. Make friends, Jesus said. Keep eternity in balance. If people will risk life and limb and reputation and prison and all manner of suffering for a few dollars if they will punish themselves for the fleeting victory of an athletic competition, what then should our attitude be toward those things that last forever? How different would we be? How different would the world be if we had the spiritual chutzpah, the holy ambition, if we would employ that in our spiritual lives with the same fierceness and focus that we apply to the things we want in this world. The last word. A professor was teaching his class, a class of seniors that were getting ready to graduate from college, and he had before him a few strange things. First, he had a large, empty jar, an old pickle jar, one of those with the wide mouth. And then he had a pile of rocks. Then he had a few little stones and a bag of something. And he took that jar and he put all the rocks inside of it. And he said to his class, is it full? And they said, yeah, it's full. And he scooped up those pebbles and started pouring them in. And they were falling down among the rocks. And he got all the pebbles in. And he said, is it full? And they said, yeah, now it's full. And then he took that box, that bag of whatever he had, and he opened it up and it was sand. And he began to pour the sand in. And it filled up every crevice, every crack, till it was completely, everyone could then agree, absolutely full. And then he told them this. This jar is your life. The rocks are the important things. Your family, your partner, your health, your children, your faith, Things that if everything else was lost and only they remained, your life would still be full. The pebbles are the other things. They matter, but not as much as the rocks. Your job, your house, your car. They're important, but they're not necessary. And the sand is everything else. If you put the sand into the jar first, there will be no room 
for anything else. So if you spend all your time and energy on the small stuff, you will never have room for the things that really matter. And something we should all probably hear. There will always be time to go to work. There will always be time to fix the garbage disposal. There will always be time to clean the house. But prioritizing what will last forever, you only have so much time and space for that. The words of my favorite benediction. And now, my friends, life is short and we do not have much time to gladden the hearts of those who travel with us. So let us be swift to love and make haste to be kind. And the God who made us and loves us and travels with us will give us his peace.